So far, if you remember where we have come from, in the very beginning I brought to you the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said, Come, let us go to the mountain. And the imagery, if you remember I had it on here, was the liturgy is in the shape of a mountain. And so, so far, we have been engaging the preparation phase where we prepare our hearts from the time we're in our homes to coming to church, to prayers in the church, and so on. And then we begin our ascension with the liturgy of the Word. Okay? And in that includes all of these prayers of preparations. We've gone through the canon of the Mass. All of the parts of the Mass up to this point have been bringing us to the mountaintop. The experience of the Eucharist. God and man together. Joined together. And we remember Father Schmemann even talked about the liturgy in this way, calling the liturgy a liturgy of ascension. We're ascending towards God. And all along in that ascension, God is gracing us for the journey to be with Him, to prepare our hearts so that we might receive life as we commune with Him in the Eucharist, the top of the mountain. So here's what I want to do today. We are going to go through and talk about at least five things that are going on in the Eucharist. In other words, what is the Eucharist? What is happening as we commune with God at the top of the mountain, even in those few short moments and beyond? Okay. Now this is not an exhaustive list, trust me, because you can't exhaust a mystery. But these are things that the church teaches us are absolutely true about God feeding Himself to us where we are joined with Him, taking the Holy Trinity into ourselves. So let's begin. The first thing that I want us to remember about the Eucharist is that the law is being placed within us. I want to take you back. We talked about this in week one. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, what was Moses given by God as he was there in that fellowship with God? He was given the law. That's right. So that not only would he know the precepts and instructions of God on how to live as the people of God in the virtues of God, but that also He would then teach and communicate and uphold that law directing the people to those very same virtues. I would put to you that every time we come and commune with God in the Eucharist, an even deeper giving of the law is taking place than even Moses received. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. Jeremiah, the God through Jeremiah says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his teacher and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, 
From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. See, no longer would the law as it was to Moses be written by the finger of God on tablets of stone carved out of a mountain. Instead, the law of God. What is the law of God? His perfect virtues. The law of God wouldn't be written on stone. The law of God would reside in a temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit. The church, each one of us. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 36, we see this again. God says through Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. How can this be that the law of God would dwell within us? Well, when do we initially receive the Holy Spirit? Baptism. Baptism. We initially receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. But then we have to look at who is filling us time and time again with Himself when we come to the Eucharist. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus Himself even then goes and summarizes the law by saying what we hear in Mass, we've already gone through it at the summary of the law. Love God and love who? Your neighbor as thyself, with and in the love of God. Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but Jesus is the law's fulfillment in person. In the person of Jesus Christ, the entire virtues of God's law as a man, yet God, were fulfilled. And is it not Jesus Himself who when we take the body and blood into our very being... We are being filled with the one who is the fulfillment of the law. That is happening at Eucharist. Why is He filling us? So that we may be graced. Remember God said in Ezekiel, I'm going to put my law in their hearts and cause them to fulfill the law. I'm going to place everything that is the nature of God, all of my virtues in mankind. And the grace therein, the grace that you and I receive when we take Eucharist, graces us to grow and blossom in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which are all of the virtues of God. So the next time you come up, next time you're preparing to come up to receive Eucharist, remember that you are being filled with every grace needed to within yourself and because of Christ fulfill the law by living out those virtues. And that's happening at Eucharist. Second thing, and this goes without saying, but we're going to look at it. 
in Eucharist, at the top of that mountain, just as Moses had fellowship with God, in no less a way, and in fact in even a greater way, because Moses was not filled with God. He met with God. We are the ones, as the body of Christ, who have been filled with the Holy Trinity. And when we come to Eucharist, it is fellowship with God. Remember when we discussed remembrance. Jesus is with His disciples the night He was betrayed. He instituted the Eucharist. This is my body, this is my blood. How was He doing that? He was fellowshipping with His disciples. Present with them. Sharing Himself with them as they did with Him. Make no mistake, in the Eucharist, when we remember Christ, He steps in, and is He still not with His disciples? Is He still not here tangibly sharing Himself? And we are to offer up ourselves to Him as well for that great relational oneness and exchange. That's definitely happened at the Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah. And in reality, when we do, He does. I like to think of it that way. Christ makes Himself just as present. But I want to talk about a particular type of fellowship that we can have with Christ and is designed by Christ through the Eucharist. And that is the fellowship of the continual revelation of Christ to us. And for that, we go to Luke 24. We remember this story, but we're going to look at it again. That's the story of the two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus after Jesus had died and was raised from the dead. And that's what we have. We have two disciples traveling on a road to a village called Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside of them on the road. However, we're told that their eyes were restrained in such a way where they could not recognize Him. And these two disciples, they're still completely foggy about all that had just happened in Jerusalem. They had seen the Christ that they had followed, the Messiah, be handed over, judged, tortured, put to death, and then they receive word from the few that had seen Him that He was raised from the dead. And they're leaving Jerusalem with all of this going on. And we're told that they were just trying to figure out what it all meant. They wanted the meaning of everything that they had just experienced. And so Jesus comes to them. And it says He begins to explain everything to them. We're told that Jesus taught them first, beginning with Moses and the prophets, all the things in Scripture concerning Himself. How would you have liked to have heard that teaching from Christ? Taking all through the Old Testament and saying this this was Christ, this was the Messiah, this was Him, and so on and so forth. And remember, their eyes had not yet been opened. They don't know that this is Jesus. And yet this teacher is teaching them all of this. And then we hear from St. Luke what happens next. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Listen to this. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. 
And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn with us while He talked with us on the road, and while He opened the Scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon." And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And I say to you that the church so strongly teaches throughout all of the history of the church that Jesus, excuse me, that Jesus through this very experience gave his disciples the form of the liturgy. For what did he do first? The liturgy of the Word. He taught them, revealed Himself to them through the Holy Scriptures. They learned. And then they came to the liturgy of the Eucharist, the breaking of the bread. And it was in the breaking of the bread that everything came clear. The fog left their eyes. Jesus was revealed and it said they knew Him. That much of a revelation was given in the breaking of the bread. Do you find it interesting that Jesus, as soon as He breaks the bread and they finally recognize Him, what does He do? He disappears. He vanishes. If you'll go with me for a second. I have a non-theological theory on this. And it's this. Maybe it is theological. This isn't the first time that Jesus shows up and disappears. He did it when they were locked in the room in Jerusalem, right? He shows up, reveals Himself, gone, disappears. I almost have the feeling that Jesus was teaching His children object permanence. You ever heard of that, object permanence? A child below a toddler or so. If I show a child this, they look at it. But if I hide it behind a couch, out of their sight, you know what the child thinks? It's totally gone. It's not, it doesn't even exist anymore in the mind of the child. But if I keep pulling that thing out, gone, back, gone, back, and they age and mature, what do they start to believe? That even though they can't see this marker... It is infinitely in the room with them. And I often wonder if Jesus, with all of these pop-in, pop-out moments, revelation of my resurrection and disappearing, is not training them towards Pentecost. Because when He ascends, what does He say? You're not going to see Me, but I'm with you always. I think He's teaching them spiritual object permanence. I think he's teaching them the faith that doesn't have to see, but knows, you see. But back to the Eucharist. In the breaking of the bread comes the very revelation, and I say continued revelation, if we will just offer ourselves for that. Be watchful and listen and look, and as we take Christ into ourselves... Perhaps we know Him more each and every time through that intimate fellowship. Number three, the Eucharist is most certainly a sharing of a covenant meal. 
And it's the covenant meal of the final and never-ending covenant that God has made with mankind through which we are given life instead of death, the divine nature in replace of our sinful nature, and through which our sins in that event, in that covenant meal, are tangibly and authentically washed away. Why else would we say the blood that washes our sins? Hmm? For the remission of those sins. We should then prepare ourselves in anticipation for Christ in this manner. But to learn this, the Old Testament is absolutely filled. I could go six weeks or more teaching about all of the different foreshadowing in the Old Testament of Eucharist itself, this covenant meal. I'm only going to mention a few. You're glad I'm not going to keep you to six weeks today. understand. The first is this, even back to the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15, God establishes that covenant with Abraham that through Abraham the number of Abraham's descendants would number and equal the stars. And to establish that covenant, God tells Abraham to have a blood sacrifice. He calls Abraham to bring to him a young heifer, a young female goat, and a young ram, as well as a few different birds. God tells Abraham, you cut the heifer, the goat, and the ram into two halves, and the blood spills in between. And he didn't have to do that with the birds, just the heifer, goat, and the ram. And Genesis 15 gives us this incredible image to establish covenant with Abraham. God Himself passes through the blood spilt, passes through the two halves of the sacrifice to man, and establishes the covenant with Abraham. Fast forward. The day of Passover, the day that the angel of death would visit the Egyptians to release God's people from their captivity in Egypt. We all know this story, but let's remember. What would each house do? Each Hebrew house would kill a lamb, shed its blood, put the blood of the lamb on the post and lintel of their doors, and then they would do something we don't often think about. They would cook and they would eat the very lamb that was sacrificed. They would take the sacrificial lamb into their very being. And what was the result of the taking of this lamb and the blood shed over their post and lentil? They escaped what? Death. They escaped death. And this celebration, the Passover celebration, would continue annually with the Hebrews, even to this day. And that lamb that would be sacrificed in each house for a very long time would become known as the Paschal Lamb, where we get Pascha from. In Easter. The Old Testament is filled in its sacrificial system with ongoing blood sacrifices to keep people in the covenant that God had established. In all of the sacrifices except the grain and first fruits, which was that tithe offering that they would give at the beginning of the harvest, all other sacrifices 
had the spilling of blood from an animal sacrificed for the remission of sin, both sins against God, sins against man, and the restoration of peace between God and man. And not only would the animal be sacrificed, it would continuously be consumed, either by the priest or by the people, depending on what sacrifice we were talking about. And so now we fast forward to the night in which our Lord was betrayed. And it was at Passover. And it's here at the table with His disciples that Christ would reveal to them that He is indeed the one and the final Paschal Lamb. The sacrifice that would be given on behalf of all and for all. Hear the words. Jesus in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. As our Lord would celebrate this meal, go to His passion, be resurrected, and ascend into heaven to take His place, you have to understand everything that Christ became on behalf of all and for all. For as He ascended and took His place in heaven, having accomplished the will of God, He becomes for us the covenant maker, the one who would make covenant with God. Not mankind. Mankind doesn't make covenant with God. Jesus Christ, the God-man, made covenant with God, which is why it's an eternal covenant. This is the Christ who will not sin, will not fail. He is God, the keeper of the covenant. He is also for us our great high priest. Remember that Hebrews passage where it says He's offering His own blood at all times for the remission of our sins. And we take it into us through the blood, the wine. He has also become not only covenant maker, not only great high priest, but He is also the covenant sacrifice. He is the Paschal Lamb. He is the Lamb of God who was slain, and He is the Lamb of God. That as we drink His blood and eat His body, are we not doing the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament sacrifices, taking into ourselves the Lamb of God? the sacrifice that we might have peace again restored eternally with God. So He makes Himself that covenant meal. And this also is a wonderful consideration of a reality that's happening when that host and the wine that has become the blood goes into our very being. It is the ongoing keeping of the covenant Don't you remember, Jesus says in the vine and the branches, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. There's your salvation, right? Jesus later in John, when he was talking about, we'll look at it in just a minute, when he's talking about himself being the bread of life, he says that by eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood, you remain in me. This is how the covenant is kept. 
This is how we remain in Him. The pinnacle event, I would say, of how we remain in Him. Number four, Eucharist is the provision for life eternal. And here's where we look at Jesus fulfilling the manna in the desert. In Exodus chapter 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. In the morning the dew lay around all the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to his need. And what we need to see here about the manna is you have to look at the whole environment for what God did and what God purposed through the manna. The manna fell. Where was it? Where were they? In the wilderness. Was there anything to eat? Not for a whole nation. In the desert wilderness. So what was the manna? The manna in the desert sustained their life every day. Every day. Every day of their journey in the desert on their way to the promised land. The round bread from heaven. Let them live every day, keeping them as He led them to the promised land. I hope you're fast forwarding already in your minds. John 6 Jesus looks back at the provision of manna and He says this about Himself. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. What is he saying? Abide in me. He's saying that I am the bread of life. I will be for you my people. I will be manna that sustains you every day of your life in this present wilderness on your journey to the promised land that if you will remain in me, my faithfulness will see you there. That is the Christ. That is who feeds us of Himself that we might be sustained for every day of this journey. But He says, I'll be even more than this. 
As you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will gift you with life everlasting. Later on in that same chapter of John chapter 6, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, remains in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And this is what caused St. Ignatius, who was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, to consider the Eucharist. And he writes about it saying that the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. Where does he get it from? Because Jesus said, if you eat of it, you'll have life everlasting. And he would teach such a thing to the church as it would continue. So we have in the Eucharist the provision for life eternal because Christ is our life eternal. And finally, we come to this. The Eucharist, every Eucharist, every Mass is the day of the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. When you think of the words, the day of the Lord, consider things you might remember from Scripture and so on. What, what, what comes to your mind when you hear that? Not the Lord's day. Sunday being the Lord's day. No. The day of the Lord. Resurrection. Resurrection. What else? The end of the world. What happens at the end of the world? Transition. Sheep and the goats, what happens at the end of the world? Judgment. Judgment. Right? Alright, let me ask you this. We believe Jesus Christ is infinitely present with us in the Mass and in the Eucharist. Is He the judge of all things at all times? You can nod your heads, it's okay. He absolutely is the judge of all things at all times. When we come to Eucharist to be with one another, to go to Christ who has made Himself present with us, the day of judgment is at hand. I'm not talking about the last day at this point. Don't forget what we pray at the beginning of Mass. Let's remember this the collect of purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of Thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love Thee and worthily magnify Thy holy name. Pretend what you will when you come to Mass. But in reality, when we all come to Mass to be in absolute fellowship with the Son of God, we are bare open to Him. So let's drop the curtains. Let's drop the self-protection and healthily enter in to the day of the Lord, which is for our salvation. You remember from last week's homily... I read from Hebrews chapter 4, speaking of Christ, the one who comes into us through the Eucharist as we draw near to Him. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer writes, For the Word of God, Christ, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of whom we must, to whom we must give account. And we see this very much spelled out for us. Eucharist being the day of the Lord, even in the New Testament. Christ will teach about it. Paul will teach about it. You remember from Matthew 5, and we mentioned this a number of weeks ago in a homily, where Jesus even teaches, if you come to the altar... If you come to the altar and you know that there is a relational problem between you and another human being, really, brother or sister, you are to leave whatever you brought to the altar. Do not continue. Go and be reconciled first. Then you come back and offer to God yourselves and your gifts. If this... Eucharist, if this Mass was not the day of the Lord where Christ is enthroned, longing, yes, to extend mercy, but at the same time judging the heart and intents of man. Why would this be necessary, what Jesus says? If there's a problem between you and a brother, drop it. Go deal with the problem. Be healed. Live in the virtue of my law. Love your neighbor as I have loved you, then come back to me and receive life. You know, the church today is uh, no different than the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth had major problems coming to the Eucharist. I want to remind you of something Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread... Let me go back before I read the Scripture. Let me remind you of some of the problems they were having. Paul addresses this before he, he tells them what's going on. He says, there are divisions among you. You're broken up. You're not one. You're not dwelling in the unity of the Holy Trinity. Each person also was preferring himself or herself over their brothers and sisters. They were rushing ahead in line to be gluttonous in the Eucharist. And not only were they being gluttonous, eating a lot, at the Eucharist, what else was going on with the wine? You remember? Drunkenness. They're getting drunk at the Eucharist in Corinth. Okay? So yes, they've got some major problems with all of this, aren't they? Right? So here's what Paul writes, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have fallen asleep." For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. 
Do you hear what Paul's calling the church to? Why do you think all of this preparation and the design of the mass that the church has given us, all of the preparation, what we want to get to is that place in our lives of the humble, excuse me, the humble tax collector rather than the Pharisee. The one who is approaching God in absolute need of his or her mercy having allowed the Holy Spirit to illumine the things in us that break this fellowship and cause damage. We listen to the judgment of God. We've got to remember something. Because our current Christian culture, and I'm not talking about the true teachings of the church, our current Christian culture makes judgment a four-letter word. The word judgment is neither a negative word nor is it a positive word. Think of the, we talked about just a second ago, we mentioned the sheep and the goats. Were there not two judgments? There was a judgment pointing out the way that they were not like Christ. And then there was the judgment, well done, good and faithful servant to the ones who were remaining in Him. Judgment goes either way. What we are given in this life is the opportunity to allow the judgment of God over our lives. To welcome the judgment of God over our lives now. Because I say to you that the judgment of God over our lives, number one, it is far better off that we receive it and bow before it now than later. But you also have to understand the purpose of the judgment of God in the now. Do you really think the will of God, just like we spoke, we get this stuff in our minds, that the will of God is to judge us unto eternal death right now? Foolishness. This is the God who wills that all be saved. But in order for our salvation to occur, we must Approach Christ with all of His love, with all of His mercy, and abandoning ourselves. Lord, search me and know me. Show me where I'm not like You in nature and in virtue. I want to know it now. And then don't leave me there, but grace me with Your Holy Spirit to be transformed by your life in me as I receive your body and blood and remain in you all the days of my life. You see, that would be a judgment towards salvation. But make no mistake, when we come to the altar, this is why Paul and Christ and the church forever talks about the preparation we should be in. Because... In the Eucharist, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law, is placed within us towards those virtues. We have fellowship with God and a fellowship of the continual revelation of God and the breaking of the bread because He wants you to know Him. On the road to Emmaus, when they got to their spot to eat and He prayed and He blessed the bread and He broke it, it was Christ's will 
that those two disciples know Him. And the same will is toward us. It is the covenant meal. When we take the Eucharist, the covenant is kept amongst us in the church and in our own lives through Jesus Christ. We receive the provision for life eternal, for daily sustenance, true life, life as we've never known it. And it is also the day of the Lord that we might be saved. Let's stand.